Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to a young filmmaker is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta make films, you gotta make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a world of when I dream. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand, and oh my god, we're here. We did it. I did it. You did it. It's the finale of Charlie Chaplin. I I can't believe we made it. I can't believe it lasted this long. Oh my gosh. And it's not like this guy is going gently into the good night, okay? We got a whole bunch of insanity and drama still to come. But first... If you like the work that we're doing, you can help us out. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcasting app you use. If you know someone who you think would enjoy this, please tell them. Word of mouth is the most important way we can grow this little podcast, and I want to keep doing this for a long time to come. Lastly, I would like to add an additional source that I used for this episode, the book Una Living in the Shadows by author Jane Scavell. So... Without further ado, let's get in to Charlie Chaplin, Part 5. Listen to me, honey, dear. Something's wrong with you, I fear. It's getting harder to please you every year. I don't want to make you blue, but you need a talking to. Like a lot of people I know. Now, when we last left off, Chaplin had gained a crowning achievement in a career filled with crowning achievements. The Great Dictator became his highest grossing film of all time. Against all conventional wisdom, he dared to release an anti-Nazi comedy a full year before the United States entered the Second World War, changing his reputation from an old-fashioned artist of a bygone era to one of the most cutting-edge directors in film. At the premiere of The Great Dictator, Chaplin had delighted crowds by finally announcing that he and Paulette Goddard were married. However, this publicity stunt did nothing to save their damaged relationship, and by 1942, Paulette had obtained a divorce in Mexico, although it's never clear if they were ever officially married. Even though the details of the divorce gave Paulette access to Chaplin's yacht, the couple remained cordial. Paulette continued to visit his sons, Charles Jr. and Sidney, from time to time. Chaplin summed up the whole affair by telling them, quote, It's just one of those things, son. That's life for you. After an extended stay in New York City, Chaplin returned to his Beverly Hills home, lonely and looking for company. His assistant, Tim Durant, was only too happy to flesh out Chaplin's social calendar. Durant had become a kind of doorkeeper to the stars, the kind of guy who knew everybody and would use his power and influence to gain favors amongst the Hollywood elite. And he now controlled who got invited to Charlie's now famous Sunday tennis parties. 
Every Sunday, the Chaplin estate would become the center of the Hollywood social scene. Producers, A-list stars, and hangers-on would call Durant incessantly trying to get an invite. And Tim would make sure that amongst these guests were many of the beautiful women that would occupy Chaplin's life at this time. This included actresses like Greta Garbo, who had been the biggest female star in the 30s, Hedy Lamarr, who at this time, in addition to starring in Hollywood blockbusters opposite Clark Gable and Jimmy Stewart, was inventing radio-controlled torpedoes for the war effort. Her innovations would go on to become the basis for Bluetooth and GPS technology, both of which you might be enjoying right now. Her story is just so incredible. If you don't know about Hedy Lamarr, please look her up. Finally, around this time, Chaplin also dated a 22-year-old Carol Landis, who would go on to star in Hollywood and on Broadway, but is mostly remembered for her tragic affair with Rex Harrison that ended with her suicide. However, it was none of these big names that would come to have the greatest effect on Chaplin's life. It was a relative Hollywood newcomer. Joan Barry was an aspiring actress. She was originally born Mary Louise Gribble in Detroit, Michigan. Her father had committed suicide before her birth, and her mother soon moved with another man to New York City. After high school, Barry had moved to Hollywood with dreams of becoming a star. She had red hair, pale skin, and a striking figure, but her lack of acting experience, a nasal New York accent, and crooked teeth meant her prospects were thin. Unable to make ends meet, she was arrested for shoplifting dresses twice and was court-ordered to leave L.A. on probation. However, she soon returned, this time having made contact with a distant relative by marriage named Sam Marks, who was a producer at MGM. Marks tried to ignore Barry's request for a screen test, but then one night, as Marks and his wife returned home from a party, his wife tripped over something on the path leading to their door. It was a body. Joan's body. She was still breathing. They brought her inside and revived her. She told the Marxes that she had taken sleeping pills in an attempt to kill herself. But judging how quickly she revived, Marx was suspicious. In the days afterwards, she continued to call Marx, who finally brought her into the studio for a reading. She apparently impressed the head scout. However, MGM was unwilling to invest in the dental work and vocal training she required. She then found work as a waitress and a sort of high-priced party girl slash call girl, which is how she began a relationship with oil millionaire J. Paul Getty. Through Getty, she met A.C. Blumenthal, the theater promoter who had partied it up with Chaplin and Louise Brooks back in 1925. Blumenthal introduced her to Tim Durant, and soon Durant brought her to dinner to meet Charlie Chaplin. It really is just about who you know. Whether Chaplin thought she had talent or just saw her as another conquest is really hard to say. He describes her in his autobiography as, quote, a big handsome woman of 22, well-built, with upper regional domes immensely expansive. Excuse me. Sorry, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit over that pretentious bullshit. But even if he was focused more on her body at the first meeting, he soon brought her in for the leading role in a play he was considering adapting to a film titled Shadow and Substance. He gave her a contract, paid for the expensive dental work, and sent her to Max Reinhardt's acting school, telling his sons, quote, She has a quality, an ethereal something that's truly marvelous, a talent as great as any I've seen in my whole life. Studio manager Alf Reeves remembered her differently, later describing Barry as, quote, erratic, emotional, hard to talk to, and could easily affect a vacant stare in her eyes. 
Soon, Joan Barry was pregnant. Like so many women in his life before, Chaplin fully expected her to get an abortion, but when she delayed, he and Tim Durant upped the pressure. At one point, she went to the doctor Chaplin had paid under the table to perform the procedure, but when Joan began crying hysterically, the procedure was canceled. Chaplin told her that he would support the child only if she signed a letter of agreement terminating her contract. But preferring the thought of being a star over being a single mother, Joan went through with the abortion. Again, it's really important to remember that this is a time when abortion was completely illegal in the United States. But that does not mean it was uncommon. Hundreds of doctors in Los Angeles alone performed under-the-table procedures for women hoping to protect their careers. In fact, Major studios would keep their own abortion specialists on retainer for major stars. I mean, it's just crazy the amount of pressure everybody was under. Not long after her first abortion, Joan became pregnant a second time. Once again, Chaplin paid to terminate the pregnancy. He let her stay at his house while she recovered, but the emotional toll of two back-to-back abortions to protect her career was taking an emotional toll. She developed insomnia and Tim Durant's friend, Agent Mina Wallace, referred her to a doctor that prescribed her sleeping pills. Shortly thereafter, Joan's behavior became erratic. She quit attending her acting classes. She broke her contract with the Chaplin studio and claimed to return to MGM. She would drive up to Chaplin's house, sometimes drunk or hysterical. At one point, she smashed several windows on the bottom floor, and another time she crashed her car into his driveway. Most of this was just a desperate show to try to keep Chaplin's attention. She would later say, quote, When I behaved myself, he was bored. Chaplin fed into the cycle by continuing to give Barry his time and small amounts of money. Tim Durant would later say, quote, In the case of Joan Barry, it was a mistake. She couldn't handle a thing like that. I think he really overdid it, and I think that was his crime. Finally, it was too much. Chaplin paid off $500 of Joan's debts and bought one-way tickets for Joan and her mother to go back to New York. Chaplin spent the rest of the year working on the script for Shadow and Substance while also preparing to re-release his 1925 classic, The Gold Rush. For this, he replaced the silent film title cards with his own voiceover and composed a new score. You can find this copy of The Gold Rush, often referred to as the 1942 version. Of course, life for everybody was about to change. On December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. For decades, Chaplin had employed a full staff of Japanese servants, but now they were all detained in internment camps, leaving his home life in chaos and his opinion of the United States foreign policy at an all-time low. In May 1942, Chaplin agreed to speak at a meeting for the American Committee for Russian War Relief in San Francisco. On the night of the speech, suffering from his usual stage fright, Chaplin had a few glasses of champagne. When his name was finally called, Chaplin marched onto the stage and shocked the 10,000 attendees by calling them comrades. He continued, quote, I am not a communist. I am a human being, and I think I know the reactions of human beings. The communists are no different from anyone else. Whether they lose an arm or a leg, they suffer as all of us do. They die as all of us die. As he crescendoed to his finale, he called upon the crowd to send 10,000 telegrams to the president demanding the opening of a second front in Europe. Quote, Stalin wants it. Roosevelt has called for it. So let's all call for it. Actor John Garfield, who would later be blacklisted from Hollywood, said to him after the speech, quote, 
you have a lot of courage. Goaded on by the response, and probably excited by challenging the status quo, Chaplin began accepting more speaking engagements. He made a speech at the Second Front meeting in Los Angeles. He met with Ludmilla Pavlichenko, the female sniper credited with killing 309 German soldiers on her goodwill tour of the U.S. He phoned in to another meeting organized by the Congress of Industrial Organizations in Madison Square Garden with over 60,000 attendees. He even wrote an article for Rob Wagner's magazine, Script, calling the Soviet Union, quote, a brave new world that gave hope and inspiration to the common man. Again, as Tim Durant would later say, quote, Chaplin's very bourgeois. He's very narrow about a lot of things, and yet he's got a lot of spirit, and it's usually used in the wrong direction. He's a parlor economist. He's a political amateur, and a very absurd one. He's no more of a communist than I am. He's a ham at heart. He wanted to startle people. And startle them he would. Chaplin was invited to speak at a rally in Carnegie Hall, organized by the ultra-leftist group, The Artist Front to Win the War. Despite the involvement of celebrities like Orson Welles, Jack Warner personally told Chaplin not to go. But as Charlie Jr. later recalled, quote, as usual, his enthusiasm ran away with him. October 25th, 1942 would prove to be a day that spelled doom for Chaplin. He gave his speech, once again trotting out his comrades opener, and he continued, quote, I'm not a citizen. I don't need citizenship papers, and I've never had patriotism in that sense for any country, but I'm a patriot to humanity as a whole. I'm a citizen of the world. Later that night, when he returned to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, he was informed that Joan Barry had telephoned repeatedly. Soon she showed up in the hotel lobby, demanding to see him. Chaplin brought her upstairs. At first, he told Tim Durant not to leave them alone, but after things seemed calm, Chaplin continued to appear at pro-Russian speaking events. The salute to our Russian ally in Chicago. The Arts for Russia dinner back in New York. All this activity caught the attention of Chaplin's old nemesis, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. From this point on, Chaplin wouldn't be able to do anything in the country without the FBI watching. They sent agents to follow him wherever he went, they tapped his phones, and monitored his bank accounts. The FBI was aided in their efforts by popular LA Times gossip columnist Hedda Hopper. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, Hopper was a moderately successful actress. She even played a supporting role in the Marion Davies film Xander the Great, witnessing the beginning of Marion and Charlie's illicit affair. She stayed close with Marion Davies for years and was most likely privy to Davies' changing opinion of the great clown, calling him, quote, a contrary personality who only had a negative effect on other people's lives. It's possible that Hedda even leaked some of this information to the original gossip queen of Hollywood, Luella Parsons. But when Hopper lost her contract with MGM in the 30s, she set out to supplant Parsons with her own column, Hedda Hopper's Hollywood. She and Parsons became bitter rivals, each scooping the other, trading bitter barbs in their articles. The rivalry with Luella Parsons drove up her readership to over 35 million, but it also pushed Hopper to make her content more and more extreme. Politically, she had always been very conservative, and now she would begin mobilizing her massive audience to her cause. 
Aware of her sympathetic political leanings, the FBI developed a close relationship with Hopper. She fed them bits of gossip and hearsay, such as when she claimed Chaplin contributed $25,000 to the Communist Party, a rumor that wasn't true. And in return, she would put FBI talking points into her articles. The snarky, arrogant, and unsubstantiated writing of Hedda Hopper came to typify the FBI files. Rumors and conspiracy theories were treated as fact. They would repeatedly visit psychics to gain information on Chaplin. Oblivious to the irony, the FBI would begin recycling Nazi propaganda, claiming that Chaplin was secretly born in France to a Jewish family and that his birth name was Israel Thornstein, which I'm sure to them made things sound far more sinister. On November 2nd, 1942, Chaplin returned to California. Unbeknownst to him, he was followed by Joan Barry. She checked into the Beverly Hills Hotel and phoned Chaplin's house repeatedly. Soon, he began to see her. The two were caught in a codependent love addict, love avoidance cycle, with Joan forever chasing Chaplin and Chaplin always keeping himself just out of reach. He had long justified his poor treatment of others as an attempt to understand them. He saw his aggressive, avoidant, and manipulative behavior as ways of, quote, pushing people to understand their psychology. In Joan Barry, he pushed too far. Again, Tim Durant, quote, Charlie attracts women, but doesn't hold them. He seldom holds them because he's selfish. He's very self-centered. He's very egocentric. He's like Hitler. He wants to dominate and possess, and people can't take that. Yet somewhere in Chaplin's mind, he seemed to recognize that this selfishness had destroyed every romantic relationship he had ever had. Perhaps in an attempt to reckon with his callous womanizing, Chaplin set aside shadow and substance to develop a story idea originally suggested to him by Orson Welles. It was a story about famed French serial killer Henri Landru, who murdered at least 11 people in the 1910s, seven of which were women that he seduced, married, murdered, and robbed. Sparing himself yet another accusation of plagiarism, he paid Orson Welles $5,000 for the rights and promised him a future credit. But just as he was beginning to come face to face with the dark side of his womanizing, Chaplin was about to meet someone who would change his romantic life for the better. Una O'Neill had just arrived in Hollywood. She was the beautiful, shy, yet rebellious daughter of America's greatest playwright, Pulitzer Prize winner and Nobel laureate Eugene O'Neill. Her father and mother, writer Agnes Bolton, had separated when Una was only three. And if you remember from earlier in the story, this is because Eugene O'Neill had begun having an affair with actress Carlotta Monterey, who was the ex-wife of Chaplin's doomed friend, cartoonist Ralph Barton. Fearing an ugly and public divorce from Agnes, or Aggie as she was known, O'Neill even referenced Chaplin's divorce from Lita Gray to his attorney, writing, quote, Chaplin's wife charged him with ruining young girls with every form of perversion, and he was guilty, as everyone knows. There was every form of dirt to it, but in my case, what is there to hide? Fearing a Chaplin-esque public muckraking, O'Neill gave Aggie full custody of their two children, Una and her brother Shane, along with the guarantee that both children would attend prestigious prep schools when the time came. 
For years, Aggie struggled to make ends meet, moving the family up and down the East Coast. She seldom saw her illustrious father, but communicated with him via letters. When Una turned 13, per the divorce settlement, she enrolled in the Brearley School, a prestigious all-girl prep school on Manhattan's Upper East Side. After being poor for most of her life, Una was suddenly in the company of the richest families in America, with her father's prestigious name as social cachet. She quickly became friends with classmates Carol Marcus and Gloria Vanderbilt. Eventually, a young Truman Capote joined the crew, and together they became what I like to think of as a kind of late 1930s version of Gossip Girl, you know, a group of teenagers who become known within the Manhattan nightclub social scene. With her mother too busy to notice, Una began going out with a variety of older men. She even dated the then-unknown but still super-weird writer J.D. Salinger. During her senior year in 1942, she was named the number one debutante of New York City, and Una became a full-on it girl. Magazines and newspapers wrote about her, interviewed her, and printed her picture. The popular Stork Club offered to underwrite her coming out party for $30,000. Despite being accepted at Vassar, Una instead decided to join her mother, who is now remarried and living in L.A., and try to become an actress. Her father was also out west, living outside of Sacramento with Carlotta Monterey in his legendary Tau House. Eugene O'Neill had always been a morose character. Alcoholism and abuse had infected the family for generations. It was even claimed that the O'Neills were cursed, which he memorialized in his final plays, Long Day's Journey into Night and Moon for the Misbegotten. Eugene was now suffering from alcoholism, Parkinson's, and depression, and Carlotta did everything she could to keep people from disturbing her genius husband. Una sent her father multiple letters, but never got a response. Upon arriving in California, Una went directly to Tau House, but Carlotta refused to let her inside. Days later, she finally received a response. Quote, All I know of what you have become since you blossomed into the nightclub racket is derived from newspaper clippings of your interviews. All the publicity you have had is the wrong kind, unless your ambition is to be a second-rate movie actress of the floozy variety, the sort who have their pictures in the papers for a couple years and then sink back into obscurity of their naturally silly, talentless lives. He then goes on to reprimand her for not telling him about her life sooner so that she might take advantage of his experience, saying, quote, I could have warned you against every stupid blunder you have made. You don't want to see me. Your conduct proves that. So let's cut out the kidding. And I don't want to see the kind of daughter you have become in the past year. Here's hoping you change as you grow out of the callow stage. I had hoped there was the making of a fine, intelligent woman in you who would remain fine in whatever she did. I still hope so. If I am wrong, goodbye. If I am right, you will sometimes see the point in this letter and be grateful, in which case... Au revoir. This would be the last time Una would communicate directly with her father. She then went to Hollywood and replicated her New York playbook. Despite living with her mother in a trailer park, she became a gossip column staple, going to popular nightclubs and dating powerful men. On a date with Orson Welles, who had just released Citizen Kane, he asked to read her palm. After staring at her hand intently, he looked at her and said her love line led directly to another, older man. Quote, And I know who it is. You will soon meet and marry Charlie 
Chaplin. Although she had little money, Una's mother was still respected as a writer and had been a longtime social acquaintance of Chaplin's. Some even rumored that they had had a brief affair. Aggie introduced her daughter to agent Mina Wallace, who only a few months prior had assisted Joan Barry in attaining sleeping pills. Mina thought Una would be a perfect replacement for Joan Barry in Chaplin's film Shadow and Substance, and she immediately set up a meeting between her 17-year-old starlet and the 53-year-old comedian. A first meeting led to another, and another, and soon Una was signed to a contract at the Chaplin studio and began spending her days at Chaplin's house on Summit Drive, seeming to repeat the same sad pattern we have seen with Chaplin and young women so many times before. But Joan Barry was still present. In November, she swallowed a handful of her sleeping pills in her hotel and was discovered unconscious the next morning. The hotel manager called a doctor and a private nurse. Chaplin refused to pay the bill, but later agreed to giving her a $50 a week allowance, which did nothing to help Joan and instead kept her coming back for more. On December 23rd, Joan showed up a day early for her money. Chaplin refused. She returned that night and broke into his house with a gun. Quote, I was going to kill myself. I finally resolved to see Charles, thinking that when I got up there, I would kill myself right in front of him. During the standoff, Charles Jr. and Sidney came home, and Charlie ordered them to go to their rooms and lock their doors. According to Joan, she and Chaplin slept together that night, with him remarking, quote, Having an affair with a gun nearby was a new twist. According to Chaplin, they slept separately with his door locked. She returned the next night, which was Christmas Eve, and as Chaplin dined with guests, she threw mud at the windows. On New Year's Eve, Chaplin was out at dinner when Joan was found wandering the property with another gun. This time, Chaplin called the police, but when Joan asked to use the bathroom, she squeezed through a small window and fell 16 feet into a garden bed. She escaped to a friend's house where she once again threatened suicide. The police finally found her sitting in her car, her lips smeared with iodine. The detective who found her, most likely at the behest of Chaplin, encouraged her to plead guilty to vagrancy. She was given a 90-day suspended sentence and instructed to leave town for two years. While all this was going on, Una had become sick with a bad cold. Charlie asked her mother if Una could come stay with him so that he may personally oversee her care. Aggie, like usual, was too busy to look after her daughter and was more than happy to hand responsibility over to Charlie. This illness became a convenient excuse for Una to move in to Summit Drive. However, Una was not like the other young women in Chaplin's life. From the very beginning, it was obvious that there was something different about her. Despite her reputation as a party girl, Una found more enjoyment in reading through Charlie's massive library. Despite their 36-year age gap, Chaplin found in Una someone just as extroverted and shy as he was. Charlie Jr., who was actually the same age as Una, was immediately impressed by her, saying, quote, There was a calm about her, a native sweetness that drew Sid and me to her. She seldom spoke, but every now and then she would come up with one of those penetrating remarks that impressed even our father with her insight. For Una, it's hard to say what was going through her mind. Author Jane Scavell wrote, quote, What was in this for her? Exactly what was she looking for? A father, a lover, a provider, and protector who wanted her beside him always. 
Photographs taken during this period show her looking at Chaplin with sheer worship. How the forsaken daughter must have been thrilled at having this genius, this king of comedy, look at her with love. Soon he was escorting her to restaurants and nightclubs, and gossip columnists were forecasting an upcoming fourth marriage for the little tramp. But in early May, Joan Barry returned. She had never made it to New York and instead spent the previous months in Kansas City and Tulsa with J. Paul Getty. She again broke into Chaplin's house, only this time she was six months pregnant. She gave differing accounts of this break-in, once claiming that she found Una naked in Paulette Goddard's former bedroom, and later claimed that she found women's clothing in the room. Either way, Chaplin told her to wait by the pool, but when he didn't come downstairs fast enough, Joan smashed a glass ashtray and attempted to cut her own wrists. Joan was sent back to her hotel, and the next morning, she called Hedda Hopper. She told Hopper that she was pregnant with Chaplin's child, and he refused to pay for it. That night, she again returned to Chaplin's house, only this time she was arrested for trespassing. Mina Wallace visited Joan in jail, hoping to calm the already volatile situation. But as she left her cell, she ran into reporter Flora Bell Muir, who was visiting Joan at the behest of Hedda Hopper. Muir convinced Joan to tell her entire story, saying, quote, It took a long time. She kept breaking down and crying and telling me Charles was a fine man, that he was a genius, and she didn't want to hurt him in any way. I said, he's hurt you plenty. He's got you in the can. That's a fine thing for a genius to do. Joan was sentenced to 30 days, but at the behest of Chaplin, was released to a hospital. She was soon joined by her mother, who told Chaplin that they wanted $150,000 plus a $100,000 trust fund for the baby. Chaplin refused, and Joan was soon in the middle of a humiliating private legal negotiation. At the same time, Flora Bell Muir was pressuring the L.A. County D.A. to indict Chaplin for arranging two illegal abortions. Two investigators were sent to Chaplin's house. They interviewed the staff, his sons, and Una, but all denied any knowledge of the situation. They then went to Joan Barry, who became so upset during the interview, she tried to jump out of a window. For no other reason than to stir up a scandal, Muir pushed Joan to file a paternity suit while Hedda Hopper continued to blast Chaplin in the press. In the midst of yet another growing sex scandal, Una turned 18, and on May 14th, she and Chaplin announced their plans to marry. Upon reading the news, a furious Eugene O'Neill wrote to Aggie, blaming her for the match. Aggie wrote back informing her ex-husband that she had cautioned Una against the marriage, to which Una said, quote, If I don't marry Charlie, if you don't give consent, I'll never marry anyone. This is going to be the love of my life. In June, Joan Barry announced that she was pregnant and named Chaplin as the father. Her mother, Gertrude, filed a paternity suit against Chaplin, asking for $10,000 for prenatal care, $5,000 for court costs, and $2,500 a month for child support. California divorce and paternity laws at the time stipulated that just an allegation was sufficient grounds to force the man to support the woman and child until settlement. Chaplin's lawyers negotiated the terms, forcing Barry to submit to a blood test on the infant to determine the child's paternity. These tests were to be reviewed by three doctors, and Barry agreed that if at least two of the three doctors said no, the suit would be dropped. 
Hedda Hopper had a field day with the Barry allegations, stirring up a media storm. Tim Durant and Chaplin's lawyers advised Una to return east and wait out the story, but she refused to leave Charlie's side. Instead, they arranged for a secret wedding ceremony at the Santa Barbara courthouse. On June 15th, they registered for a marriage license, escaping just in time to evade the press. They were ironically married by a 78-year-old justice of the peace, who was so oblivious to who he was marrying that he wrote down Chaplin's name on the marriage certificate as Chapman. Some older Chaplin associates like Harry Crocker and Georgia Hale claimed that the marriage was just another attempt by Chaplin to get out of scandal. However, I'm not so sure I believe this. For Chaplin, marrying a girl who had just turned 18 did little to clean up his reputation. The press just furthered the narrative that he was a sexual deviant procuring young girls. And, to make matters even worse, he had driven two cars from L.A. to Santa Barbara, circumventing the wartime gas rations. This was a big deal at the time. Despite all this criticism and chaos, the marriage would go on to last for 34 years. Again, author Jane Scavell wrote, quote, After nearly two generations of erratic, erotic relationships, Charlie Chaplin found his heart's ease. And after nearly two decades of neglect in some form or other, Una O'Neill found her haven. No matter how many times she repudiated the implication that Chaplin was a father replacement, whether consciously or unconsciously, Una had sought a person whose fame and influence matched and possibly exceeded that of Eugene O'Neill. She found him, and in so doing put herself in the unique position of being daughter to one genius and wife to another. They rented a secluded house in Santa Barbara and for eight blissful weeks lived in peace. Outside, the growing anti-Chaplin sentiment was spreading through the American public like wildfire. Some accused Una of being nothing more than a gold digger. There were even bizarre rumors that Chaplin treated himself with monkey glands, whatever the hell that is, to keep up his youthful sexual prowess. This caused a still bitter J.D. Salinger to write to a friend, quote, I can see them at home in the evenings. Chaplin squatting gray and nude atop his chiffonier, swinging his thyroid around his head by his bamboo cane like a dead rat. Una in an aquamarine gown applauding madly from the bathroom. Newly elected U.S. Attorney Charles H. Carr was looking to build his reputation on anti-corruption. For a long time, the Beverly Hills Police Department had acted more or less like a public security detail for the stars. And in the Joan Barry case, he saw his opportunity to make an example. At first, the FBI was unsupportive of his claims, but when Carr referenced a rumor that Chaplin had brought Barry to New York around the time of his Carnegie Hall speech to participate in an alleged orgy with his friends, J. Edgar Hoover ordered agents to investigate charges that Chaplin had violated the Mann Act. Now, we've got to talk about the Mann Act for a second, because this is just an all-time horrible piece of legislation that has haunted Americans for over a century. It was born out of the same movement that brought women's suffrage and prohibition. But while those movements were at least about something real, the Mann Act was created in response to a conspiracy theory that holds major relevance today. We've talked about previously how the early 1900s saw a surge in the number of prostitutes as strict religious and social mores prevented women who had sex out of marriage from finding other work. 
In response to this, people began to circulate rumors that massive numbers of good Christian white women were being kidnapped and forced into prostitution by a mysterious foreign cabal, which were usually seen as Jewish, Chinese, or black. The practice was called white slavery, and believers claimed that over 60,000 women fell victim to it every year. There was absolutely zero evidence that any of this was happening in the way promoters of the conspiracy theory claimed. But in response to the outcry, Congress passed the Mann Act, which made it a felony to engage in the interstate transport of, quote, any woman or girl for the purpose of prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose. It became evident early on that the intended targets of this law, the secret cabal of sex traffickers, didn't exist. However, the broad general language of the bill inspired law enforcement to use it for other purposes, mostly targeting and threatening men they didn't like. The first African-American world heavyweight boxing champion, Jack Johnson, who was known for flaunting his relationships with white women, was convicted by an all-white jury for a Mann Act violation, even though the alleged incidents took place before the passage of the Mann Act. Instead, he fled the country, having to put his illustrious career on hold, and later he would be sent to Leavenworth Prison. Other victims of the Mann Act include architect Frank Lloyd Wright and poet George Barker. The Mann Act continued to be used as a bludgeon of misjustice through the 1960s until finally it was amended in 1986. If you want to learn more about the Mann Act, I highly recommend checking out the QAnon Anonymous podcast, who does a full episode about it for their subscription-based series, Trickle Down. And if you want to learn more about Jack Johnson, check out the podcast History on Fire that does an amazing multi-part series on him. Now, for their investigation of Chaplin, the FBI questioned hundreds of witnesses. They bugged his phones. They put stops on the border, believing that if he was convicted, Chaplin might try to defect to the Soviet Union. Despite all this activity, many in the Bureau and Carr himself were incredibly doubtful that they had enough evidence to convict Chaplin of anything, but they went through with it because Carr had tied his political future to the case and wanted to use the opportunity to paint Chaplin as an anti-American who spent his time nightclubbing, having sex, wasting gasoline, and denouncing American policy while our boys are out there trying to win a war. On February 10, 1944, Chaplin was indicted by a federal grand jury, alleging he, quote, feloniously transported and caused to be transported Joan Barry from Los Angeles to New York with the intent and purpose of engaging in illicit sex relations. Chaplin was arrested and in a complete breach of protocol was publicly fingerprinted in front of a large group of photographers. Variety magazine called for Chaplin to be kicked out of the industry. The case was a total waste of time. The charge depended on proof that Chaplin had not only paid Joan Barry's train fare to New York with the intention of sleeping with her, but also that a sexual relationship took place after his speech at Carnegie Hall. Chaplin hired a big-time lawyer named Jerry Geisler, who brilliantly argued his defense, saying, quote, There's no more evidence of a Mann Act violation than there is evidence of murder. During the course of the trial, it was revealed that Barry had repeatedly slept with J. Paul Getty, her other lover, during this time. Chaplin took the stand as the final witness, and Geisler wrote in his memoirs, quote, Chaplin was the best witness I've ever seen in the court of law. Realizing that Chaplin was about to be found not guilty, J. Edgar Hoover pulled a ridiculous ace from his sleeve. 
he revealed that the trial judge in the case had once had an afternoon lunch date with Joan Barry. How did he know this? Well, he gave her a copy of his book signed, and you just can't make this stuff up, to Joan Barry with kindest regards from her friend, the author J.F.T. O'Connor. Joan Barry had left the book behind in a lodging house, and when the FBI raided it, the book was confiscated as evidence. It was declared a mistrial. With the federal case dismissed, it seemed like everything was going to work out for Chaplin. The blood tests for the separate paternity suit came back and conclusively showed that Chaplin could not be the father of the child. Chaplin's blood was type O. Joan Barry's was type A. Therefore, they could not produce a child with type B blood. However, a motion to dismiss the case was overruled. Joan Barry evaded the settlement to drop the suit if the tests proved negative by taking guardianship of the child away from her grandmother and assigning it to the court. Now, it was the court of Los Angeles that was suing Chaplin on the child's behalf, and a new trial was set for December 1944. Convinced that he would be exonerated, Chaplin chose not to retain the expensive Jerry Geisler as counsel. This would prove to be a grave mistake. He underestimated two critical factors. The first was that blood tests were not yet admissible in California state paternity suits. The second was that the prosecution hired lawyer Joseph Scott, the same histrionic lawyer hired by the League of Decency who used anti-Semitic threats to force the studio heads to abide by the Hayes Code a decade earlier. Scott put on a wild show trial, once again trotting out a wide array of racist dog whistles, calling Chaplin a, quote, gray-headed old buzzard, a little runt of a Svengali, a Piccadilly pimp, and a lecherous hound that lied like a cheap Cockney cad. He said of Chaplin, quote, the reptile looked up on Barry as so much carrion. The insults shocked the court and threw Chaplin off guard. At one point, Joseph Scott asked the jury to gaze for a full minute at Chaplin and for another full minute at the 14-month-old child, all the while urging them to recognize the facial resemblances. If you know what a 14-month-old child looks like, you know that this is completely ridiculous. His closing argument was this, quote, There has been no one to stop Chaplin in his lecherous conduct all these years except you. Wives and mothers all over the country are watching to see you stop him dead in his tracks. You'll sleep well the night you show him the law means him as well as the bums on Skid Row. After five hours, the jury could not reach a verdict. Judge Clarence Kincaid offered to arbitrate, but Chaplin, stubbornly seeking a complete exoneration, refused. A retrial was scheduled for April. This time, the jury consisted of 11 women and one man. Humiliated and afraid of Joe Scott's accusations, Chaplin refused to be present in the courtroom. After two weeks, the jury found Charles Chaplin responsible for supporting a child that was demonstrably not his. And although he was only ordered to pay a paltry $70 a week in child support, it was his public image that sustained the brunt of the fallout. Joan Barry would go on to marry again and have two more children. Shortly after moving to Mexico in 1953, she was found dazed wandering on the roadside in Torrance, California. She was barefoot, 
holding a pair of children's shoes, and had supposedly walked there all the way from Mexico. During production of the 1991 Richard Attenborough film Chaplin, attempts were made to locate Joan Barry. However, when production spoke to her children from her second marriage, they said they did not know what had become of their mother. Although Wikipedia claims Joan Barry died in New York in 2007, I can find no evidence to corroborate this. If anyone knows more details about this, please email me, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. During the trial, Una gave birth to their first child, Geraldine. For the first time in his life, Chaplin found solace from his troubles in being a father and a husband. But in 1945, he began ramping up production for his next film, A Comedy of Murders, titled Monsieur Verdoux. Much had changed in the four years since the idea was first suggested by Orson Welles. He had now turned the simple story of a serial killer into a full-on indictment of industrialized mass murder and the economic forces that incentivize violence. The story goes as follows. Henri Verdoux was a French bank teller for 30 years, but is laid off as a result of the 1928 stock market crash. To support his wheelchair-bound wife and young child, he begins marrying and murdering wealthy widows to make ends meet. But as he continues wooing and killing more victims, the family of one of his past conquests becomes suspicious. At a dinner party, a friendly chemist tells Verdoux about a new drug he has developed to exterminate animals painlessly. However, the local pharmaceutical board has banned it. Intrigued, Verdoux later attempts to recreate the drug. He finds a homeless girl who has just been released from prison. He takes her in, offering to give her dinner, but spikes her wine with the newly developed poison. Before drinking her wine, she tells him about her invalid husband who died while she was in jail. Touched by her story, Verdoux claims that there's cork in her wine glass and replaces it. She leaves without ever knowing his murderous intentions. He makes several comic attempts to murder the heavy-set housewife, Annabella Bonheur, but she inadvertently evades him and forces him into a wedding, which he fakes a cramp to get out of. Years pass, and as the Second World War looms on the horizon, Verdoux has once again gone bankrupt and lost his family. He runs into the homeless girl in Paris, where she has now married a wealthy munitions executive. She invites Verdoux to a fancy restaurant, where she reveals that she does not love her husband and just married him for his money. While dining, Verdoux is recognized by his early victim's family and is captured by investigators. Exposed and convicted as a murderer, he uses the courtroom to make a speech, claiming that his actions are nothing compared to the mass murderers that exist in governments all across the world. He's met by a priest, but refuses to repent. Guards take him away to his death as the film ends. Now, as you might imagine, Joe Breen and the PCA board had some notes. Upon first receiving the script, they opposed it entirely, claiming it had a, quote, distasteful flavor of illicit sex, which in our judgment is not good. However, in exposing the PCA as a complete sham of an operation, Chaplin was able to charm Breen into approving the film, compromising on a few cuts that in hindsight seem ridiculous. 
He removed any suggestion that Verdu actually had sex with the wives he murdered. He cut out all criticism of the clergy in the final scene. He made sure to portray the priest in a positive light. He cut all implications that the homeless girl may have been a prostitute. And finally, and most importantly, he made sure there would be no showing of or suggestion of toilets in the bathroom. Toilets. This was the PCA's biggest note. I, I, I don't know what to say. I don't, even, I don't even understand why that would be an issue. Anyway, with that, the raving anti-Semite Joe Breen gave his seal of approval, and work began in earnest in March 1946. But so much had changed at the Chaplin studio. Union strikes had forced studio wages up 25%, and most of the old faces were gone. Rolly Tothro and Wheeler Dryden remained, but Sidney Chaplin turned down a role at the behest of his new wife who did not want him involved in his brother's drama. Trying to recapture some of the old magic, Chaplin invited Edna Purviance to play one of the murdered widows. Her return to the studio after almost 20 years was emotional for her, Charlie, and Rolly, the three remaining founding members. But after a brief screen test, both she and Charlie agreed that she was not right in the part, and she returned home, never to see Chaplin again. Then, longtime confidant and bit part actor Henry Bergman, who is most often remembered as the portly mayor who unveils the statue in City Lights, passed away just before shooting began. Finally, Alf Reeves, the old studio manager who had been with Charlie since his days of being a Carnot comedian, died in April. Reeves was replaced by the gruff and efficient John McFadden, who did his best to get the studio up to modern standards. At McFadden's behest, a bunch of archival footage was destroyed. McFadden even discouraged distribution of Charlie's classic films, saying, quote, That's the old chaplain. Forget that. Tothero began whispering into Charlie's ear, and before the shoot of Verdu was finished, McFadden was fired. However, he did manage to institute one important change. For the first time in Charlie's history, he would use a shooting schedule. It's hard to believe that he had gone 30 years without one, but the market forces of filmmaking had crushed Chaplin's methods of creative freedom. To Chaplin's credit, he adjusted well and finished principal photography only 17 days behind schedule. Chaplin repeated the risky choice of ending his film with a grand speech in which he spoke through his character to share his thoughts on the state of the world. And just like President Eisenhower would later do in his 1961 farewell address, Chaplin took aim at the growing military-industrial complex. However remiss the prosecutor has been in complimenting me, he at least admits that I have brains. Thank you, monsieur, I have. And for 35 years, I used them honestly. After that, nobody wanted them. So I was forced to go into business for myself. As for being a mass killer, does not the world encourage it? Is it not building weapons of destruction for the sole purpose of mass killing? Has it not blown unsuspecting women and little children to pieces and done it very scientifically? <laughs> As a mass killer, I'm an amateur by comparison. However, I do not wish to lose my temper because very shortly I shall lose my head. Nevertheless, upon leaving this spark of earthly existence, I have this to say. 
I shall see you all very soon. It's also worth noting that the famous quote most commonly associated with Joseph Stalin in 1947, that one death is a tragedy, but a million deaths is a statistic, was most likely inspired by a line from Monsieur Verdu, who says, quote, That's the history of many a big business. Wars, conflict, it's all business. One murder makes a villain, millions a hero. Numbers sanctify, my good fellow. The film came out earlier in the same year that Stalin is supposed to have said the famous quote. Anyway, after six weeks of recording and perfecting the sound, Chaplin took the film back to Joe Breen and the PCA for a private screening. Chaplin said afterward, quote, Breen turned to the rest and said, I think it's all right, let it go. There was silence. Then someone said, well, it's okay by me, there's no cleavage. The others were glum. Chaplin gave a press statement saying, quote, Von Clausewitz said that war is the logical extension of diplomacy. Monsieur Verdu feels that murder is the logical extension of business. He should express the feeling of the times we live in. Society, with all its attending upheavals, wars, and depressions, bring out the latent evil tendencies in weak characters. He is frustrated, bitter, and at the end, pessimistic. Or as Verdu cleverly says in the film, quote, Business is a ruthless business. Chaplin believed rightly that it was unfettered and unregulated greed and capitalism that had led to the Great Depression. And if the little tramp was the poster child victim of that event, Verdu would be the poster child perpetrator. Verdu was the exact opposite of the little tramp. While the tramp is shabby with a heart of gold, Verdu is genteel with a soul of ice. No doubt this had to be in Chaplin's mind as he constructed the part, giving himself as big of a challenge as possible to differentiate himself from his iconic character. On March 11, 1947, Chaplin and Una boarded a train to New York City for the premiere. It would prove to be the beginning of a nightmare. Bad publicity from the Barry trials had made Chaplin paranoid and resistant to the media. Having previously controlled his film's publicity campaigns, United Artists was surprised when Chaplin was surprisingly reluctant to promote Monsieur Verdu. He sent angry memos to the UA office forbidding the use of the words wives, lover, passionate, bigamy, and sex from being used in the film's promotion. A tough ask for a film about a passionate bigamist and lover who uses sex to get money from his wives. UA struggled to market the film on their own, coming up with a ridiculous PR campaign that included handing out inexpensive replicas of Verdu's mustache to audience members, and joint campaigns with local banks encouraging widows to deposit their cash with the phrase, quote, don't let a Verdu do you. <laughs> oh man, that's awful. Um, to make matters worse, Chaplin, not wanting to give Orson Welles any story credit, was being quoted for saying that the story was inspired by Oscar Wilde's portrait of Thomas Wainwright, prompting Welles to then go to the press and claim credit for the story on his own. The Joan Barry trial had caused a wave of political backlash, turning Chaplin from the beloved clown into a hated radical that had refused to become an American citizen. The day before the premiere, Chaplin gave a press conference to foreign reporters only, in which he laughed at these criticisms. He brought up his tax bill and called himself a, quote, well-paying guest. 
The anecdote was not well received, and Chaplin soon agreed to speak to the American press in an open press conference days after the film's opening. Finally, on April 11th, Chaplin, along with Una and Mary Pickford, attended the premiere. From the very start of the film, it was clear that a portion of the audience was there to demonstrate against Chaplin, booing, hissing, and shouting insults. Eventually, Chaplin left his viewing box and waited in the lobby. At the after-party, guests avoided his table, and Chaplin feared the worst. His satirical take on a society that condemns murder but glorifies war was despised by critics. The Herald Tribune called it, quote, something of an affront to the intelligence, and columnist Dorothy Kilgallen distilled the public sentiment when she wrote that Chaplin believes, quote, the makers of the atom bomb are the real murderers, and so are the heroes of the last war. In a ridiculously petty and backhanded attempt to askew his own blame and throw Wells under the bus, Chaplin then decided to honor his previous agreement, inserting a title card that read, quote, an original story written by Charles Chaplin based on an idea by Orson Wells. The following Monday, an overflowing crowd of reporters filled the grand ballroom of the Gotham Hotel on 55th and 5th. There was blood in the water, and you could cut the tension with a knife. Knowing they had a political and financial disaster on their hands, the UA executives paced in the dressing room as a defiant chaplain took the stage. He stood behind several microphones and said, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, I am not going to waste your time. I should say, proceed with the butchery. The press did just that. The opening question was, are you a communist? And things only got worse from there. Had you not failed to give Orson Welles proper credit? Had the great dictator been shown in the Soviet Union? Are you part of a motion picture combine to transfer American films to the Soviet Union? They brought up his friends and asked him to name names as to who in his circle was a communist. A journalist for the Catholic War Veterans paper, James Fay, took over the proceedings, bringing up Chaplin's Carnegie Hall speech and accusing him of hating America and dodging his taxes. Ironic, considering that Chaplin had, albeit forcibly, paid more money in taxes than everyone in the room combined. The verbal onslaught went on and on. They ridiculed Monsieur Verdoux and asked him if he would permit his children to see such a film. Chaplin responded, quote, Why not? Not all of it's beyond them. I know there are a lot of pictures that I wouldn't allow my children to see that are supposed to be very forthright, high moral purpose, that I wouldn't send my children because it's absolutely a false notion of life, something that doesn't exist. A lot of pictures are very dishonest. After nearly an hour of grilling, James Agee from Time Magazine stood up in Chaplin's defense, shouting from the balcony, quote, What are people who care a damn about freedom, who really care for it, think of a country and the people in it, who congratulate themselves upon this country as the finest on earth and as a free country, when so many of the people in this country pry into what a man's citizenship is, try to tell him his business from hour to hour and from day to day, and exert a public moral blackmail against him for his political views? When A.G. later moved to Hollywood to write The African Queen, he and Chaplin remained close friends. The press conference would go down as one of the greatest publicity disasters in film history. And yet, Chaplin set himself up in this position, and I think he knew what he was doing. He knew the negative sentiment that was against him, and in this open forum inquisition, he positioned himself to be seen as the victim 
standing up to the mob. Monsieur Verdu played in New York for four weeks to dwindling audiences. Upon returning to L.A., Chaplin decided to delay the nationwide release of the film until the fall. Russell Birdwell, a PR specialist who had done the marketing for Gone with the Wind, was hired. He came up with an ad campaign that attempted to challenge the audience, printing one-sheets that read, quote, Be prepared. Chaplin changes. Can you? The answer was a resounding no. By the summer, House Congressional member John T. Rankin of Mississippi announced in Congress, quote, I am here today demanding that Attorney General Tom Clark institute proceedings to deport Charlie Chaplin. He has refused to become an American citizen. His very life in Hollywood is detrimental to the moral fabric of America. Congress succeeded in deporting the German-born composer Hans Eisler, a frequent collaborator with Bertolt Brecht, Eisler was in all likelihood a communist with direct connections to Moscow. However, because Chaplin considered him a friend, he did everything he could to try and support him. At one point, Chaplin, Una, and several friends attended a party. When it became clear that they weren't welcome, Chaplin tried to make a hasty exit. He found Una calmly wiping the front of her dress with a handkerchief. As they drove home, she told him that after being introduced to a guest as Mrs. Charles Chaplin, the guest proceeded to spit on her. In July, it was announced that the House Un-American Activities Committee, in their effort to root out subversives and communists from American culture, had named Charlie Chaplin, along with a group of 19 other writers, producers, and directors, to be subpoenaed to testify before Congress. Chaplin didn't wait for a subpoena, and instead sent a telegram to the committee saying, quote, I understand I am to be your single guest at the expense of the taxpayers. Forgive me for this premature acceptance of your headlines newspaper invitation. In order that you may be completely up to date on my thinking, I suggest you view carefully my latest production, Monsieur Verdu. It is against war and the future slaughter of our youth. I trust you will not find its humane message distasteful. While you are preparing your engraved Pina, I will give you a hint on where I stand. I am not a communist. I am a peacemonger. This brash warning shot worked. Fearing that Chaplin might win public sentiment by staging a publicity stunt, his testimony was delayed three times and ultimately canceled. But many of the other targets, not nearly as famous as Chaplin, were not so lucky. The hearings began with friendly testimony from Walt Disney, who testified that communists had infiltrated the film industry, naming several former staffers in his accusations. He was followed by the head of the Screen Actors Guild and future president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, who claimed that communists within his union were attempting to steer policy. Reagan named names of SAG members to the FBI and soon mandated that union members sign anti-communist loyalty oaths. His then-wife, actress Jane Wyman, was so disturbed by his actions, turning against friends and colleagues, that it ultimately led to their divorce. They were soon followed by the so-called unfriendly witnesses, who arrived in Washington with an impressive lobby of supporters— John Huston, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Gene Kelly, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, and Paulette Goddard, calling themselves the Committee on the First Amendment, risked their careers trying to stand up for free speech. However, the first ten witnesses to testify, all former or current members of the Communist Party, decided to band together and stage their own protest. 
The Hollywood Ten, as they would later be called, refused to answer the committee's questions and instead turned the proceedings into a bombastic war of name-calling. They lectured the senators on the principles of Americanism, accused them of waging a cold war on minorities, and proclaimed Congress as a hotbed of American fascists. All these things may have been true, but the political theater caused many of their high-profile supporters to back away. The Hollywood Ten were voted in contempt of Congress. They were sentenced anywhere from six months to a year in prison. On November 26, 1947, Eric Johnston of the Producers Association announced that all ten members would be banned from the industry, the beginning of the Hollywood blacklist. That same week, Hans Eisler was detained at Ellis Island prior to his deportation to eastern Germany. Chaplin sent a telegram to Pablo Picasso, a self-proclaimed communist, asking him to head a committee of French artists to protest to the U.S. Embassy in Paris. When this telegram was leaked to the French press, it caused a renewed uproar, making it appear that a non-citizen was organizing an anti-American protest abroad. This all but sabotaged any hope that the delayed release of Monsieur Verdoux would be successful and instead sent the FBI into another investigation to determine whether or not Chaplin was, quote, engaged in Soviet espionage. Two years later, this telegram would be brought up once again in the U.S. Congress with Senator Harry Kane saying, quote, it skirts perilously close to treason. On December 11th, The Hollywood Reporter speculated why Chaplin was still permitted to live in the U.S., adding, quote, It has become quite obvious that he is not satisfied with the conduct of our government and continually criticizes its actions. Hoping to recoup some of Verdoux's losses abroad, Chaplin began speaking to the British press before the London premiere. However, he couldn't stop himself from expressing his true feelings, saying, quote, Hollywood is now fighting its last battle, and it will lose that battle unless it decides once and for all to give up standardizing its films, unless it realizes that masterpieces cannot be mass-produced in the cinema like tractors in a factory. I think, objectively, that it is time to take a new road so that money shall no longer be the all-powerful god of a decaying community. I, Charlie Chaplin, declare that Hollywood is dying. Chaplin had planned a trip to London with Una and the kids for the Verdoux premiere. However, his status as a resident alien, never questioned before, now allowed the INS to request that he submit to an interview in order to approve his re-entry permit. In April 1947, an INS deputy commissioner and an FBI special agent showed up at Summit Drive. In addition to questioning Chaplin's communist ties, they asked about his morals, such as, quote, have you ever committed adultery? With a notion of what they might be planning, Chaplin canceled his trip. Chaplin's expected trip back to the UK also inspired a bitter end to one of the most celebrated political authors of the 20th century, the man whose name has become synonymous with the abuse of government power, George Orwell. In 1949, only a few months after he turned in his final manuscript for his novel 1984, Orwell was in a hospital dying from tuberculosis. In a letter to the Information Research Department, a secret organization under the British Foreign Office whose job was to investigate communist activity and spread anti-communist propaganda throughout the Commonwealth, 
Orwell listed 38 people he referred to as cryptos, individuals he suspected of being underground communists. Beside each name, he left a brief comment that typified his opinion of the person and reads more like a bigoted grievance one might find today on 4chan or Telegram. Quote, Stephen Spender, a sentimental sympathizer, tendency toward homosexuality. Kingsley Martin, decayed liberal, very dishonest. Paul Robeson, very anti-white. Charlie Chaplin, Jewish? Question mark. This list was only made public in 2003. It is an eye-opening portrait of a man whose work is required reading throughout the U.S. and Great Britain. With it, we can now see him not as an unimpeachable moral giant, but instead as a forerunner to the so-called free thinkers of today's intellectual dark web, whose unprincipled pseudo-intellectualism so often devolves into bitterness and bigotry. In Orwell, we see the terrible staying power of anti-Semitism. Only four years after the horrors of the Holocaust were revealed to the world, Orwell was repackaging the anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that had been at the heart of the Nazi ideology that communism was an essentially Jewish political movement. May we forever remember Orwell for who he really was, rather than the humanist prophet we were taught in school. As long as these ideas continued to circulate in the culture, the FBI continued working in the shadows. They compiled files and files of minute details and grievances, everyone who he had ever snapped at, the people he had insulted, the plagiarism accusations that weren't true. Their file kind of reads like the final episode of Seinfeld, you know, where all the bereaved characters from the past come back and accuse Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer of their social faux pas in open court. They documented his failure to appear in the 1931 Royal Variety Show, his failure to return to Hanwell Orphanage with gift bags, and the rumored ending change to modern times at the behest of Soviet film producer Boris Shumiatsky, who, by the way, at this point had been murdered in one of Stalin's purges. Shumiatsky never drank alcohol, so when he refused to drink after toasting to Stalin's health, he was murdered. In 1948, with absolutely zero evidence, Hoover instructed FBI officials to place Chaplin on the security index as an alien communist, which is sort of like the Patriot Act. It meant that they could detain Chaplin at their discretion in the event of a quote-unquote emergency. Verdu only earned a meager $325,000 over two years in the U.S., it gained some domestic support. It was named Best Film of the Year by the National Board of Review, and it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, for which it lost to the Cary Grant Shirley Temple comedy, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soxer. However, outside the U.S., mainly in Europe, where people saw firsthand the murderous impacts of war, Monsieur Verdu fared far better. It earned $1.5 million in Europe. It won awards for Best American Film in Denmark. When it was finally released in Japan in 1953, it earned Japan's two most prestigious film awards for foreign language films. Ironically, it was banned in the Soviet Union, which thought the film promoted bad morals and resistance to the state. Despite these details, Verdu was an unmitigated box office failure. And because of it, United Artists was over a million dollars in debt. 
Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin argued about the best way forward, both wanting to sell the company. But when an Eastern theater circuit offered $12 million for UA, the deal fell through due to their constant bickering. When Pickford and Chaplin did finally sell UA some years later, it was for considerably less. The soaring costs of production and studio operation now forced Chaplin to rent out his once private fiefdom. The Chaplin studio was used by the company Cathedral Films, which shot dozens of religious shorts there. It was also used by Procter & Gamble to produce some of the very first television commercials ever made. Through it all, Chaplin depended on Una and his ever-growing family for support. Their first child was immediately followed by a son, Michael, in 1946, and two more daughters soon followed, Josephine in 1949 and Victoria in 1951. Despite these additions, the once busy house on Summit Drive had now become a ghost town. Charles Jr. recalled, quote, I was saddened to see it was no longer considered a privilege to be a guest at the home of Charlie Chaplin. Many people were actually afraid to be seen there lest they too should become suspect. Tim Durant once had his phone ringing steadily with people calling him, offering him favors, whining him, dining him, in the hope that he would extend them an invitation to the chaplain home. Now it was Tim's turn to phone them and beg them to come for a game of tennis. But they all backed out. Without his busy social calendar, Chaplin began spending more time with his son, Sidney, who, along with a friend, Jerry Epstein, had established the Circle Theater in Los Angeles. When he had nothing to do, Chaplin would go and hang out with Sidney and Epstein at the box office. Before long, he was giving notes. And for five plays, Chaplin would serve as an unofficial assistant director, coming in during the final week and giving tweaks to the actors. As Lillian Ross reported in her book Moments with Chaplin, he would say, quote, You must not act. You must give the audience the impression that you've just read the script. That's phony. We don't talk that way. Just say it. Let's get away from acting. We don't want acting. We want reality. Give the audience the feeling that they're looking through a keyhole. Returning to the theater and seeing Sidney find his voice as an actor must have reminded Chaplin of his own childhood. He began writing a novel about a washed-up music hall comedian named Calvero and a young, struggling dancer. Over the next several years, it grew to over a thousand pages long. On the first page of the manuscript, he described Calvero as thus, quote, Necessity made him turn to comedy, which he loathed, because it demanded of him an intimacy with his audience, which he did not feel and which never came naturally to him. Chaplin claimed that Calvero was inspired by an American comedian named Frank Tinney, whom he had seen perform, whom he had seen perform when he first came to New York. Some years later, he saw Tenney again and recognized with shock that, quote, the comic muse had left him. Knowing the ever maudlin Chaplin, he no doubt harbored a fear and a macabre sense of destiny that the same phenomena would one day happen to him. And now, in his 60s, he must have worried that the time had come. The story of the novel is as follows. On the eve of World War I, a once famous stage clown, Calvero, returns home drunk to his apartment, but discovers his downstairs neighbor, Terry Ambrose, attempting suicide by gas. He saves her from death and brings her to his own apartment. Through many long conversations, Calvero helps Terry regain her self-esteem and resume her dancing career. She also inspires him to try and regain his former fame, but his comeback attempt is met with abject failure. 
Despite their age difference, Terry wants to marry Calvero, but when she reunites with a young composer, Neville, whom she once had a crush on, Calvero steps away, believing the younger man would be a more suitable match. To dissuade her, Calvero leaves his apartment and becomes a street performer. Terry falls in love with Neville and stars in her own dance show, but when she finds Calvero on the street, she convinces him to return to the stage for a benefit concert. Calvero reunites with his old partner and gives a triumphant comeback performance, but during the grand finale, he falls off the stage and lands in a bass drum, suffering a heart attack. He watches Terry go on for the second act performance as he dies in the wings of the theater. Chaplin poured his entire life into this story. Calvero is partly himself, but also partly his father. Most of his life, Chaplin had blamed his father for the terrible poverty he and his mother experienced, but now he was beginning to reconsider his feelings. He recognized his mother's infidelity and eventual madness as a contributing factor to his father's drinking, writing in the novel version of the story, quote, Many years ago, Calvero suffered unrequited love for a young woman who ran away with his rival to South Africa, where she married. He began to drink. The more he drinks, the less appeal he has to his audience. Terry, the young dancer, is also given a lengthy backstory in the novel version. In it, her mother resembles an adult Hannah Chaplin, bent over her sewing machine as she struggles to make a meager living for her children. Terry attempts suicide by turning on her gas stove, just like Chaplin seldom talked about long-lost love Florence Deshawn had done in 1922. It's moving and heartbreaking to think that he wrote a scene in which he, after all these years, is finally able to save her. After four years of writing, Chaplin converted his novel into a script, which he retitled as Limelight. Chaplin told his sons that he expected this to be his last film. It became a full-on family affair. He cast Sidney in the role of Neville, the handsome young composer. Charles Jr. was resentfully given a small role as a clown. His younger children, Geraldine, Michael, and Josephine, played three small street urchins in the opening scene. And the doctor, who is called after Terry's suicide attempt, is played by his half-brother, Wheeler Dryden. He hired Jerry Epstein from the Circle Theater as his assistant director, and after a few months of searching, hired 20-year-old British actress Claire Bloom for the role of Terry. Claire and her mother moved to Los Angeles for eight weeks of preparation, during which time Claire's physical training was overseen by Una, who was recovering from the birth of their fourth child. Chaplin was enthusiastic and filled with hope that this would be his best picture yet, he began filming in the late fall of 1951. However, the first three days of shooting had to be scrapped when Chaplin again became dissatisfied with Raleigh Tothero's camera work and again hired Carl Struess, the director of photography for The Great Dictator. Tothero was demoted to photographic consultant. However, he stayed on and took special care of Charlie's own scenes, reminding him to keep his head up and avoid having a double chin. Most of the film was shot in the Chaplin studio, but for the theater scenes, they used the RKO Pathé Studios. Sidney wrote down many fond memories from the shoot. Quote, I noticed one of the extras was wearing a strange mustard-colored suit, which looked to me quite terrible. I called Father's attention to this, and he laughed and said it was strange, but he'd had a suit just like that at one time. 
Of course, the one worn by the extra was rented from a firm of costumers, but without quite knowing why, the extra looked at the label, and inside the pocket it read, Made for Mr. Charlie Chaplin, 1918. He continues, quote, There was one old actor who was so nervous of playing with Father that he kept muffing his lines. To put him at ease, Father muddled his own lines on purpose, and after that the scene was exactly right the next time through. Father ran himself practically ragged. He was always the first to arrive at the studios in the morning and the last to leave at night. Instead of Charlie pursuing a romantic relationship with his leading lady, it was Sidney that became romantically involved with Claire Bloom during filming. During several dream sequences where Calvero performs his old music hall routines, Chaplin was finally able to use a bit that he'd been trying to fit into a film for decades. It began with a song in the classical style of musical speak singing comedy called I'm an Animal Trainer, which goes as follows. I'm an animal trainer, a circus entertainer. I've trained animals by the score, lions, tigers, and wild boar. I've made and lost a fortune in my wild career. Some say the cause was women, and some say it was beer. And then I went through bankruptcy and lost my whole menagerie, but I did not despair. I got a great idea. While searching through my underwear, a thought occurred to me. I'm tired of training elephants, so why not train a flea? He follows this song with a flea circus act, in which he mimes the intricate movements of fleas jumping from hand to hand, illustrating the non-existent insect's tricks with just his eyes. Now, I never found a good way to fit this into previous episodes, but throughout his career, Chaplin had continuously tried to make this flea circus gag work. Historians have recently uncovered archival footage of an unfinished Chaplin short from about 1922 titled The Professor. You can watch it on YouTube. It features Chaplin in a non-tramp outfit with a long mustache, long coat, and silk hat, and he carries a suitcase labeled Professor Bosco's Flea Circus. He opens the suitcase and through an intricate mime routine illustrates the elaborate world of the fleas as they dance, perform tricks, and inevitably bite him. Who knows where this idea came from or why Chaplin was so obsessed with it, but he would go on to try and insert this gag into the circus and the great dictator, sometimes taking weeks of production to film sequences he would later discard. Now, 30 years after his first attempt, Chaplin would finally bring the professor to life through one of Calvero's stage acts. The next day of shooting, a hushed silence came over the set. The crew held their breath as Limelight's most famous bit player entered the building, Buster Keaton. Keaton had been hired to play Chaplin's comedy partner for the final performance, and outside of a few seconds in a 1922 promotional film, this was the only time the two titans of silent comedy had ever shared the screen together. Keaton's career and personal life had become erratic through the previous two decades, although by the late 40s he had finally found stability with his wife Eleanor Norris. Like Una O'Neill, Eleanor Norris was much younger than Buster Keaton, but the relationship would last until Keaton's death. On stage together, Chaplin and Keaton did not disappoint. The two comedy pros began playing, each trying to upstage the other. Claire Bloom felt that, quote, some of Keaton's gags may have been a little too incandescent for Chaplin because, laugh as he did at the rushes in the screening room, Chaplin didn't see fit to allow them all into the final version of the film. 
The entire Chaplin Keaton double act is truly one of the highlights of this movie and really just has to be seen to be enjoyed. So please go out and watch it. Shooting wrapped in January, only two weeks over schedule. In total, principal photography lasted a lean 55 days. In August, the final prints were prepared for a preview at Paramount Studios. Journalist Sidney Skolsky describes the event, quote, The guest list ranged from Humphrey Bogart to Doris Duke to several old ladies who had worked with Chaplin since the gold rush. Chaplin, who wrote, produced, directed, and starred in the picture, had to do everything. He even ushered at this preview. When the picture started, the little gray-haired man sat at the dial controls in the rear of the room and regulated the sound for the picture. It was the most exciting night I have ever spent in a projection room. There was drama and history in that room. There was comedy and drama on the screen. When the lights went up, the entire audience stood up and applauded and shouted, Bravo! It was as if all Hollywood was paying tribute to Charlie Chaplin. The little gray-haired fellow walked up to the platform. He said, Thank you. I was very scared. You are the first people in the world who have seen this picture. I don't want to keep you any longer, but I do want to say thank you. Then a woman in the audience shouted, No, thank you! And the rest of the audience chimed in. Somehow, I think this is the key to limelight. It doesn't matter whether some people think it is good, some people think it is great. This is no ordinary picture made by an ordinary man. This is a great hunk of celluloid history and emotion, and I think everybody who is genuinely interested in the movies will say, thank you. Based on this response, Chaplin believed he had yet another hit on his hands, and that the reflective nature of the film would insulate him from previously angry American audiences. Additionally, United Artists, which was now under new management, was banking on Limelight to finally lift them out of the financial burden that had dogged the company since The Great Dictator. To complete the sentimental circle, Chaplin decided to hold his first ever world premiere in his boyhood home of London. The entire Chaplin family traveled to New York, and despite some cold interactions with the press, Limelight was already beginning to receive positive reviews. The Chaplin family embarked for England on the Queen Elizabeth on September 17, 1952. But after two days at sea, a radio news report declared the unthinkable. The United States Attorney General James McGranery had rescinded Chaplin's reentry permit and ordered the INS to hold him for hearings when or if he attempted to reenter the country. This action was being taken on the grounds that the Justice Department is permitted to bar aliens for morals, health of insanity, or for advocating communism or associating with communists. In secret meetings prior to Chaplin's departure, McGranery had colluded with J. Edgar Hoover to pressure the INS into revoking Chaplin's reentry permit because of moral turpitude. Forty years after he first arrived as a Carnot comedian, Charlie Chaplin was no longer permitted in the United States. When the Queen Elizabeth arrived at Southampton, she brought Charlie Chaplin back to the old country again after a long absence. Reporters swarmed round him, of course, and he seemed positively to enjoy a little autograph signing. Well, Mr. Chaplin, it's nice to see you back again. And uh, it's nice to be here, I assure you. Grand. On the question of his return to America, this is all he had to say at the time. 
we, uh, I, I've already, I can only reiterate what I said before. I suppose I presume um, that that's already been published. Thank you very much. Thank you indeed. When they reached Waterloo, there was naturally a great welcome in store for the Chaplin family. A new generation had grown up since Charlie was last here, but that in no way detracted from the universal interest in the arrival of the world-famous film star comedian. Welcome to Britain, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Chaplin. The British rallied to Chaplin's side, welcoming back their prodigal son with open arms. Journalist Lionel Hale wrote, quote, There's always some good in folly, and the good might be that England and the London streets, which are so greatly changed from the days of fog and gaslight and barefoot boys, might after so long a time have once again, as one of its gallant inhabitants, one of the greatest artists of the era. British MPs took easy political victories, publicly demanding that the U.S. allow Chaplin to re-enter the country, and some American politicians back home denounced Chaplin's persecution. But Attorney General McGranery was unmoved. Quote, If what has been said about him is true, he is, in my opinion, an unsavory character. Further adding that when the public knows the facts on which he was basing his decision, it would realize that this action was more than justified. Declassified documents now reveal that the FBI had found zero evidence to support its belief that Chaplin was a communist, and should he try to return, McGranery planned on asking Chaplin if he had procured two illegal abortions for Joan Barry. If he said yes, he would be denied entry. If he said no, he would be accused of perjury. McGranery was facing pressure from more than just J. Edgar Hoover. President Truman, having faced early criticism for being too light on communism, had pushed his government to continue the witch hunt. In the months leading up to his exile, Hedda Hopper, whose hatred of Chaplin had only grown over the years, was single-handedly lobbying sitting members of Congress to deport him. She received a letter from then-California Senator Richard Nixon, quote, Dear Hedda, I agree with you that the way the Chaplin case has been handled has been a disgrace for years. Unfortunately, we aren't able to do much about it when the top decisions are made by the likes of McGranery. You can be sure, however, that I will keep my eye on the case, and possibly after January, we will be able to work with the administration, which will apply the same rules to Chaplin as they do to ordinary citizens. Cordially, Dick Nixon. For those keeping track, that's now three sitting or future presidents advocating for Chaplin's removal from the country. Conservative groups were quick to jump into action. The American Legion, the American Legion, a nonprofit veterans group, adopted a resolution urging distributors to withdraw limelight from their theaters. They organized picketing and, quote, other publicity measures to carry out this plan. At a showing of the film in Dubuque, Iowa, the audience started a riot, running up and down the aisles and tearing up seats from the floor. The police were called and the film was pulled from the screen. Soon after, Fox... Lowe's, and RKO pulled limelight from U.S. distribution. Hedda Hopper wrote, quote, No one can deny that Chaplin is a good actor. That doesn't give him the right to go against our customs, to abhor everything we stand for, to throw our hospitality back in our faces. I abhor what he stands for. Good riddance to bad rubbish. It's incredible to consider the deep historical irony of everything that had just happened. Chaplin 
was once the most beloved man in the entire world, the man who had made a billion people laugh, and the man who was the poster child for the American dream and capitalism as a whole, the man who had stood up to Hitler when few else would, the man who turned American cinema into a universal language, had become trapped in the machinery of American persecution, just like the little tramp had become trapped in the cogs of industry. He was not a communist, and he certainly was not a spy. Instead, he proves to be a powerful example of how propagandistic repression works. His enemies constructed a false subversive image based on stereotypes. Much of the cited evidence against Chaplin was true, but his persecutors relied on half-truths, twisted contexts, and false framing of events to construct the image that they wanted. Finally, they used his sexual behavior to fuel the witch hunt. And while there were things he did that no doubt were wrong, I personally have to remind myself that this country was founded on a Puritan hatred of sexuality in all of its forms, and that each of us must ask ourselves, when does private behavior justify political and professional excommunication? The new heads of United Artists, Robert Benjamin and Arthur Krim, fought valiantly to save the film, using their few allies in the press and arranging meetings with politicians and religious leaders to try and stop the blowback. However, Chaplin himself often undercut their efforts. Still expecting huge distribution percentages like he had gotten for City Lights and The Great Dictator, he vetoed several deals with prominent theater chains. His gambler's luck had finally run out. As Robert Benjamin wrote, quote, Everybody has been working hour by hour on Limelight as a crusade, not a distribution venture, and the real beneficiary fails to appreciate this. UA is devoting itself substantially to Limelight to the detriment of its other product. Back in England, Chaplin did his best to keep up appearances, showing Una his boyhood home and attending the Limelight premiere press circuit. He then traveled to Paris for the French premiere, where he had dinner with Pablo Picasso and Jean-Paul Sartre. The next day, Chaplin and Una visited Picasso's studio, but the visit wasn't pleasant. Picasso hated Limelight, writing, quote, When he starts reaching for the heartstrings, maybe he impresses Chagall, but it doesn't go down with me. It's just bad literature. He also derided Chaplin for getting old, quote, Time has conquered him and turned him into another person. Now he's a lost soul, just another actor in search of his individuality, and he won't be able to make anybody laugh. Picasso's wife later commented that the aging Picasso actually related deeply to Limelight, and it hit a little too close to home. For his part, Chaplin hit back in his autobiography, calling Picasso's studio, quote, the most deplorable barn-like garret that even Chatterton would have been loath to die in. Despite this social sniping, Chaplin tactfully avoided commenting on the situation in the United States, fearing his fortune back in L.A. might be seized. On November 17th, Una took a flight from London to New York. There, she was joined by Arthur Kelly, and the two of them traveled to Los Angeles, and in two days, she managed to safely remove all valuable assets, transfer the bank accounts, and prepare the studio and Chaplin home for sale. During this chaotic time, she found the FBI had been relentless in interrogating anyone associated with Chaplin. The most tragic victim in this was Charlie's half-brother, Wheeler Dryden. 
Without a job at the studio and having been questioned multiple times by the FBI, Wheeler fell into paranoia. He became convinced that agents were poisoning his food. His few friends did the best they could to get him out of the house, but noticed that he was constantly looking over his shoulder, fearing that someone might be following him. He gradually fell into ill health and died in 1957 at the age of 65. Una returned to London after five days. It would be the longest time she and Charlie were ever apart. The Chaplin family relocated to Switzerland. Chaplin had disliked the country when he first visited with Douglas Fairbanks in 1931, but now Switzerland, and its favorable tax and banking laws, proved to be the most financially advantageous place to settle down. In January 1953, the Chaplins moved into the Manoir de Bon, a house in Vevey, Switzerland. It was an elegant 15-room villa close to the northeastern shore of Lake Geneva. The home sat on 37 acres, including a park, an orchard, and a garden. By the end of the year, his L.A. home and the famed Chaplin studio were sold. Chaplin formally handed back his U.S. reentry permit with a public statement, quote, I have been the object of lies and vicious propaganda by powerful reactionary groups who, by their influence and by the aid of America's yellow press, have created an unhealthy atmosphere in which liberal-minded individuals can be singled out and persecuted. Under these conditions, I find it virtually impossible to continue my motion picture work, and I have therefore given up my residence in the United States. The FBI sent a memo to its agents warning them that this may be a trick, and Chaplin would actually try to re-enter the country in disguise. Una soon renounced her own American citizenship, and finally, in March 1955, Chaplin sold off his remaining interests in United Artists. In Vevey, the Chaplins became members of a strange community of exiled royals, the former king and queen of Italy, the former queens of Spain and Albania, and the former kings of Bulgaria and Yugoslavia all lived within a 50-mile radius. They began to attend strange parties where the old customs of court were still being upheld by the sad cadre of banished monarchs. These surreal circumstances, combined with his need to channel his anger into satire, led Chaplin, now 66 years old, to announce that he was coming out of retirement and beginning production for what would be his 80th film, A King in New York. He had worked on the script periodically over two years, and now, in 1955, with the help of Jerry Epstein, he had set up a new production company and was renting Shepperton Studios in London for filming. The story goes like this. After being deposed by a revolution, King Igor Shadov comes to New York City only to discover that his wealth has been stolen by his former prime minister. He wants to have a meeting with the Atomic Energy Commission to share his ideas about how nuclear power could create a utopia, but is blown off. Instead, he and his ambassador go out into beautiful New York City, where they soon experience crowded streets, crass movie theaters, and have their lunch ruined by a raucous jazz band, and strangers pestering King Shadoff for autographs. Shadoff is then invited to a dinner party where he flirts with Anne, a beautiful advertising exec, only to have her casually interrupt their conversation to advertise toothpaste and deodorant to an unseen camera. It turns out the dinner party was a televised ruse, and in the hopes of using his celebrity, Anne convinces Shadoff to do more commercials. Although he has reservations, he needs the money. 
When he's invited to speak at a progressive school, Shadoff meets a precocious young boy named Rupert Maccabee, who gives a Marxist speech. After he struggles with his commercial dialogue, Anne convinces him that he would make more money if he got plastic surgery to look younger. Shadoff goes through with it, but the doctor botches his nose job and facelift. He later goes to a comedy show and, against the doctor's orders, laughs so hard that he tears his facelift and has to have the procedure redone, returning him to his original face. But later he finds young Rupert Maccabee left on the street after his communist parents have been jailed for not giving up the names of other suspected collaborators. Shadov takes the young boy in but soon becomes a suspect himself and has to face a McCarthy-style hearing. But on the way to the hearing, he accidentally gets his finger stuck in a fire hose and has to drag the entire hose to the hearing. And when the hose is suddenly attached to a spigot, Shadov inadvertently douses the hearing with water. Although Shadov is cleared of all charges, Rupert reveals the names of his parents' communist friends in exchange for their freedom. Riddled with guilt, Shadov reassures him that the anti-communist scare will all be over soon. For the role of Rupert, Charlie cast his young son, Michael. Production was decidedly different than any Chaplin had experienced before. He was no longer the master of his own studio and knew none of the technicians involved. Cinematographer George Perinal seldom had time to finish his lighting setups before Chaplin would declare, I'm ready to shoot now. Because of the high rental costs, Chaplin had to stick to an incredibly tight 12-week shooting window. The strain and unfamiliarity shows in the final film, whose quaint sets and sometimes awkward cutting belie a filmmaker struggling against forces outside of his control. However, I would encourage viewers to look past these obvious flaws and instead marvel at this aging man willing to once again get up off the mat and hit back at his oppressor. It is one of the few films of the era that challenged the American anti-communist hysteria. It wasn't even shown in the United States until 1976. A King in New York premiered on September 12, 1957. Chaplin barred the American press from the show. The reception was decidedly mixed. Playwright John Osborne wrote, quote, In some ways, A King in New York must be his most bitter film. It is calculated, passionate rage clinched uncomfortably into the kindness. It is calculated, passionate rage clinched uncomfortably into the kindness of an astonishing comic personality. Like the king in his film, he has shaken the dust off the United States from his feet, and now he has turned round to kick it carefully and deliberately in their faces. Some of it is well-aimed, some is not. Playwright J.B. Priestley, another name on Orwell's infamous list, wrote, quote, The truth is, this post-war period of ours is rapidly turning into a sour age, in which a great many peevish little men like nothing better than to sneer at anybody of real stature. And Charles Chaplin has stature. There is not, to my mind, a hint of communist savagery and inhumanity in the satire, for Chaplin, like most genuine artists, is at heart a genial and gentle anarchist, and the laughter he provokes clears and sweetens the air. Journalist Paul Den added, quote, Its narrative may be incoherent, its cutting slack, its camera work primitive, and its decor, by glossy Hollywood standards, abominably shoddy. But it says more in its brief tragicomic compass than all this year's glossy Hollywood pictures laid end to end. And the more you see it, the more it will have to say, which I take to be a symptom of greatness. And in this sentiment, I really have to agree. A King in New York would be the last time Chaplin starred in a film, and it's arguably his weakest output. But it is still better than most directors' entire catalog. 
His jabs at loud, abrasive American life still ring true today. There's some hilarious scenes where he goes to a CinemaScope-style theater and watches these ridiculous previews. One of the films is called A Killer with a Soul, and the trailer reads, You'll love him. He'll creep into your heart. Bring the family. It then cuts to a scene with a woman on a bed. She turns around to find a man standing over her. He reaches into his pocket and pulls a giant gun and says, I gotta kill you, honey. It's for your own good. Bang, 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 he shoots, to which the woman dramatically sits up and declares, Missed. Then the trailer ends. The dinner scene in which King Shadov's flirtatious seatmate Anne keeps interrupting him to say a commercial to an unseen camera was no doubt the inspiration behind the opening scene of Jean-Luc Godard's Pierrot Le Fou. The whole bit about Shadov's botched plastic surgery is hilarious. Ah, heaven's alive! What is it? Your face, what have they done to it? You don't like it? The lip, they've shortened it too much. This is a fine time to tell me. But you can't appear on television like that. I knew it. I knew it. They've taken off too much of my lip. Don't get excited, honey. They can put back your lip. How? From another part of my body, I suppose. No, no. It can be lowered by letting a pleat out of it. What do you think? My face is a skirt? The whole gag was most likely a little dig at Mary Pickford, who was one of the first Hollywood stars to fall victim to bad plastic surgery when a facelift in the 1930s left her without the ability to smile. It's easy to criticize anyone, but especially someone who has reached the highest heights and is clearly no longer on top of the mountain. But if we do, we are missing the point. The point is whether or not the individual is operating by any kind of underlying principles, for they, in my opinion, are what give a piece of work value. Rather than resting on his laurels or coasting on his reputation, Chaplin is still reaching for something more. He's trying to use comedy to say something honest, something challenging, and something that he genuinely feels needs to be said. I once described his early shorts as if he was jumping out of an airplane and building a parachute on the way down. Almost 50 years later, he's still jumping. Later in his life, he would say, to work is to live, and I want to live. I can't stop working. Ideas just keep popping into my head. It really reminds me of a 60 Minutes interview with jazz trumpet legend Miles Davis, who distilled what it means to be an artist into the simplest of terms. Would you be a musician if nobody ever heard you? Sure. Why? Because I love music. It's in my head. I can't get it out. So you listen? Yeah. You're hearing it yourself. I hear now. After A King in New York, Chaplin began writing his memoirs and continued to devote himself to his growing family. His older son, Sidney, had found success on Broadway and won a Tony Award for Best Actor in a Musical in 1957. In 1958, when the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce announced the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Chaplin's name was conspicuously missing from the pioneering stars who were to be honored. Mary Pickford denounced the omission as ridiculous. Charles Chaplin Jr., who had fallen out with his father over differences of politics and career, tried in vain to file suit against the chamber to change their policy. Una had her eighth and final child in 1962. Chaplin's half-brother Sidney and his wife were frequent guests at Manoir de Bon. Having never had kids of his own, Sidney was an uncle extraordinaire, entertaining Charlie's many children with jokes and impressions and in what I find so touching, he even wrote long letters to the older kids filled with pages and pages of jokes for which he kept carbon copies to make sure that he never repeated himself. 
These years were captured by Una with her beloved 8mm film camera. The family made frequent trips to the local circus, often inviting clowns, performers, and animals back to their home for an after-party. Despite the growing number of children, Chaplin and Una maintained an impenetrable bond that sometimes caused tension between them and the kids. Author Jane Scavell wrote, quote, The delight that Una and Charlie took in each other's company tended to isolate them in that self-sufficient world of love. Problems between the Chaplin parents and children arose not because Una and Charlie were uncaring or disunited in their concern for their youngsters, but simply because he wanted her all to himself. Chaplin was, by all accounts, a caring, albeit strict father. He tried to provide the paternal discipline that he never received and always wanted, and yet was just as conflict-averse as he had been as a director, leaving much of the discipline to the children's nannies. Most of the children were sent for periods of time to strict boarding schools. Furthermore, as the richest and most famous family in the area, the kids felt isolated from their schoolmates. Geraldine quickly left home to join the Royal Ballet School. Michael was soon to follow, throwing himself into the swinging 60s London counterculture, where he acted, recorded pop songs, struggled with drug addiction, and fathered a child. In 1966, he released a marijuana-tinged memoir called I Couldn't Smoke the Grass on My Father's Lawn, and for several years remained estranged from the rest of the family. Charlie spent six years writing his autobiography, which was finally released to massive sales in 1964. Now, I've given my opinions deriding the reliability of this book throughout the episodes, but it is a fun and engaging read. Upon publishing, many of the surviving collaborators of Chaplin were deeply hurt to discover that he made no mention of them whatsoever. He spends pages and pages going on about hanging out at Hearst Castle, yet barely mentions Rolly Tothero, Henry Bergman, Max Wayne, Eric Campbell, Wheeler Dryden, Albert Austin, and Georgia Hale. Perhaps the most notable omission is Stan Laurel, his one-time Carnot roommate, who had since gone on to be a massive success. Although it is not confirmed, many believe it was Laurel's brief time working as a Chaplin impersonator in 1916 that forever poisoned their relationship. After decades of collaborating and fighting, Mary Pickford was portrayed in the book as a frigid miser. Years after the publication of the book, Doug Fairbanks Jr., who had spent a lot of time with the chaplains in London, went to his legendary stepmother with the hope of staging a reconciliation. Pickford was now bedridden, still in her legendary mansion of Pickfair. After listening for a few beats, Mary looked at her stepson and said, quote, I don't care, he's still a son of a bitch. In 1965, Chaplin's older half-brother, Sidney, died in Nice at the age of 80. He was cremated and his ashes were buried in Switzerland, thus severing the final remaining tie to Charlie's boyhood in London. Struggling to deal with his grief, Chaplin began pre-production on what would be his final film. During the first half of the 1960s, as the United States began to become more liberal, Chaplin's reputation had grown in esteem. Many now saw him as America's persecuted genius, and the rise of European auteurs such as Bergman, Antonioni, and Jean-Luc Godard rekindled interest in early jack-of-all-trade filmmakers. Chaplin decided to return to a script originally inspired by his European lover Mae Reeves and written for his ex-wife Paulette Goddard. It was called A Countess from Hong Kong. 
The story was about an American diplomat, Ogden Mears, who, while on a layover in Hong Kong, meets Natasha, a Russian countess whose parents fled to Hong Kong after the Russian Revolution. As his boat sets sail, Natasha hides in his cabin to escape her life as a prostitute. Dealing with a failing marriage back home, Ogden reluctantly agrees to let her stay, but they have to figure out a way to get her off the ship once it docks. They decide she should marry his middle-aged valet, Hudson. Hudson, however, tries to consummate the relationship, and when the boat docks in Honolulu, she jumps overboard and swims ashore. Ogden is soon joined by his conservative wife, but when he tells her of Natasha, she speaks disparagingly of the woman. Natasha is informed that her citizenship has been accepted, but she must remain in Honolulu, as Ogden and his wife board a ship departing for the mainland. As Natasha sits alone in the hotel's cabaret, she is surprised by Ogden. He has left his wife and returned to Honolulu, and the two of them dance together. The film was to be produced by Universal's European Division. It was to be Chaplin's first film in color and first shot on anamorphic wide lenses. Filming was set to take place at Pinewood Studios, just outside of London. And for the leads, Chaplin cast two of the biggest stars of the day, Sophia Loren and Marlon Brando. Brando accepted the role without reading the script, claiming Chaplin was, quote, probably the most talented man that the money goes ever put to. Okay, I promise. I won't do Brando. I won't do Brando. I promise. I promise. Okay, Chaplin was, quote, probably the most talented man the medium has ever produced. But very quickly, the temperamental actor and Chaplin began to clash on set. Brando was the poster child for modern acting. Having been trained by Stella Adler, he had revolutionized the art form with his realistic performances in A Streetcar Named Desire and On the Waterfront. To give an idea of his choices, once in an acting class, the students were all pretending to be chickens. And when the teacher told them a bomb was going to go off, all the students started running around like crazy. Only Brando didn't move. He kept clucking along in the middle of the classroom. When the teacher asked him why he didn't run, Brando said, I'm a chicken. What do I know about a bomb? It's so funny because intellectually, Brando and Chaplin believed the same thing, that in order to be good, an actor must never be seen acting. However, they couldn't be more different into how they got those results. Brando relied on the system passed down from Stanislavski, where each character had an objective and each moment was defined by a single action in pursuit of that objective. If he was ever asked to do anything that didn't make sense, then it wasn't worth doing. Furthermore, he was notoriously difficult on set. He would insist on rewriting lines he didn't like and threaten to quit any production that did not adhere to his wishes. Combining Brando with Chaplin, a director who expects all his actors to imitate him without question, what could possibly go wrong? The answer? Everything. Brando immediately regretted saying yes to this project. He hated the script and he hated Charlie's direction. When he showed up late for work, Chaplin yelled at him in front of the entire crew. Accustomed to being in control wherever he went, Brando took out his frustrations on Sophia Loren. He would comment on her nose hairs during a love scene. He would chauvinistically spank her whenever she walked by. Chaplin quickly tried to put an end to his antics, telling Brando that if he didn't stop, he would take the issues public, saying, quote, You call a press conference, and I'll call one, and we'll see who gets the biggest audience. Brando fell in line, but clearly phoned in his performance. A week before the end of shooting, Chaplin got into costume for the last time, playing an elderly steward who becomes seasick. 
It was a brief gag that harkened back to some of his earliest films. A Countess from Hong Kong premiered in London on January 5th, 1967. It was a critical and commercial flop. Despite Charlie's best efforts to defend his gentle romantic comedy, going so far as to declare it 10 years ahead of its time, it just wasn't. I just watched the film for the first time recently, and it's a really interesting final entry to Chaplin's filmography. I mean, the story is a light bedroom farce, and in my opinion, it requires two things. The first, actors who are trained for the theater that can handle large amounts of dialogue with very little scenic change, and the second are actors who, like Charlie, approach their role and the world with an internal joy and optimism. Sophia Loren and Marlon Brando fail on both counts. Now, when she's at her best, Sophia Loren can cultivate a very effective sort of modern inwardness. Most actors today are instructed to do as little as possible, to sit there, stare, and let the audience project the character and story onto them. But when she's asked to do the heavy lifting of extended dialogue, she is woefully unequipped with the skills of rhetoric and wit exercised by people who naturally talk a lot. Brando, to some degree, can do this. However, he approaches his work and his life from a deeply cynical perspective. Everyone is bad, except for him. Everyone is stupid, and human beings are inherently unsavory creatures. This position worked really well for a lot of the gritty, low-down characters that are remembered as Brando's best. But this core belief made him the worst possible actor for a Chaplin film. He appears to be acting through gritted teeth, hating every second of the process and channeling his misery into the character. Brando would later write, quote, Chaplin was a fearsomely cruel man. A countess from Hong Kong was a disaster. And while we were making it, I discovered that Chaplin was probably the most sadistic man I've ever met. He was an egotistical tyrant and a penny pincher. He harassed people when they were late and scolded them unmercifully to work faster. Worst of all, he treated his son Sidney, who played my sidekick, cruelly. These quotes are often cited as proof of Chaplin being a bad person. To which I say, since when is Marlon Brando the arbiter of onset behavior? Like most cynics and nihilists, Brando projects his own misery onto those around him. So while I have no doubt that he and Chaplin butted heads, I tend to find his description lacking in credibility. Poor casting wasn't the film's only problem. 1967 was the year that Hollywood finally began shaking off the repressive shackles of the Hayes Code, with films like Bonnie and Clyde, The Dirty Dozen, The Graduate, Weekend, and Belle de Jour. A Countess from Hong Kong simply doesn't hold up. Chaplin was deeply hurt by the criticism and what must have been an inner realization that he had made his worst film since Sunnyside. To make matters worse, while finishing the edit, Chaplin tripped on an uneven piece of pavement and broke his ankle. Unbelievably, this was the first time in his life he had ever broken a bone, and now, at 77 years of age, his mobility was greatly limited. The following year brought even more bad news. His eldest son, Charlie Jr., died at his grandmother's home in California. Always the more serious and brooding of the two brothers, his acting career never caught a break, and while serving in the army during World War II, he had developed a drinking problem. 
Many hard years and two failed marriages later, he died from a pulmonary embolism after years of alcohol abuse and was laid to rest in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery beside his grandmother, Hannah. Chaplin continued to tinker with ideas for scripts. His main focus was a story called The Freak, which was about a little girl who awakens one morning to find that she has sprouted wings. Chaplin hoped to have his daughter, Victoria, star in the film, but when she suddenly eloped with a traveling French circus performer, the idea was scuttled. Chaplin would attempt to begin pre-production on this film several more times with Jerry Epstein until finally one day Una pulled Jerry aside and said, quote, There is no picture. The freak will kill him. Instead, Una directed Chaplin to busy himself with writing scores for his remaining films, which would soon be re-released with the help of distributor Mo Rothman. Rothman worked his connections not only to make a fortune from Chaplin's back catalog, but to encourage the international film body to begin heaping lifetime achievements on the little tramp. Cannes Film Festival gave him a special award. He was invested as commander of the Légion d'Honneur, the highest civilian honor in France. The Lincoln Center Film Society invited Chaplin to return to the U.S. for the first time since his exile, and soon, the Academy of Motion Picture, Arts, and Sciences, eager to right the wrongs of the 1950s, announced it would be awarding Chaplin with an honorary Oscar and invited him to attend the ceremony in Los Angeles. No legal changes had taken place since 1952, Illustrating the total insanity of the anti-communist witch hunt, his denied re-entry permit had simply been forgotten. Chaplin and Una went to New York, they saw old friends, and went to the ceremony at Lincoln Center. They were even honored by Mayor Lindsay. They then boarded a flight to Los Angeles, accompanied by actress Candace Bergen, who was reporting for Life magazine. She wrote of the flight, quote, As they got nearer Los Angeles, he grew more and more nervous. Sure, he shouldn't have come. He looked fearful and trapped, but made a brave attempt to fight it. Oh well, he sighed. It wasn't so bad. After all, I met Una there. He found L.A. completely changed and unfamiliar. The new owners of Chaplin Studios, A&M Records, had done much to protect his legacy. They had the buildings declared a national monument and built a Chaplin museum in their lobby. They invited him to take part in a welcome back ceremony, but Chaplin declined opting instead to drive by on a Sunday when the studio was closed and content himself by looking through the gates. At a dinner held in his honor, Chaplin reunited with Tim Durant, Georgia Hale, and even Jackie Coogan, now bald for his role of Uncle Fester. The two embraced, and Chaplin said, quote, What a pleasure to see you, little boy. At the Oscars, Chaplin and Una watched the show from a television in his dressing room. Chaplin had always hated awards and often refused to accept them when they were given. For years, he had used his special Oscar for the circus as a doorstop. But now, as his name was called and the crowd cheered, he became overwhelmed with emotion. Thank you so much. This is an emotional moment for me. And words seem so futile, so feeble. I can only say that... Thank you for the honor of, of inviting me here. And, oh, you're wonderful, sweet people. Thank you. When the presenter brought out a bowler hat and cane, inviting Chaplin to give one last tramp performance, Chaplin took the bowler hat and attempted to make it pop off his head. However, he lost his grip and the hat fell to the stage floor. 
Chaplin shrugged to the audience and left. Upon returning to Switzerland, Chaplin's health continued to decline. He became bound to a wheelchair and withdrew from social engagements. Una did everything she could, not only to care for the man, but to keep up his zest for life, saying, quote, Charlie looked after me when I was young and needed looking after. It is now my turn to look after him. If love means anything at all, it must prevail in the bad times as well as the good. Privately, she feared of doing to Charlie what Carlotta had done to her father, and made great efforts to keep up their social calendar. As writer Francis Wyndham would recall, quote, Although one ostensibly traveled to Vevey to see Charlie, one came away remembering Una. In 1975, Chaplin and Una went to London, where he received a knighthood from Queen Elizabeth II. He hoped to walk the ten yards to present himself to the queen, but sadly was unable to stand and was knighted in his wheelchair. Despite these honors, Charlie's continued decline took a terrible toll on Una. Although her oldest children had left the home, she was still actively raising several kids, with the youngest, Christopher, being only 13. Her father had always claimed that the O'Neill family was cursed, and indeed, Una's half-brother Eugene Jr. committed suicide with a note, quote, Never let it be said of an O'Neill that he failed to empty a bottle. Then, in 1977, her immediate brother Shane, after decades of drug abuse, jumped from a four-story window and died soon thereafter. For her entire life, Una had avoided the depression and alcoholism that her father had made famous in the heart-wrenching plays A Long Day's Journey Into Night and Moon for the Misbegotten. But caring for her dependent husband 24-7 continued to wear on her. Una would wake throughout the night to help Charlie to the bathroom. She strained her back trying to lift him out of bed. Soon, she began mixing whiskey into her tea. Her drinking was noticed by Chaplin, and the two fought terribly until finally Chaplin was too weak to bring up the issue, preferring to have Una by his side no matter what state she was in. By all accounts, her drinking did not affect her care for Charlie, as she continued to give him the best possible life that she could. Biographer David Robinson wrote, quote, Una was always there, a charming, gentle, smiling presence, and the marvelous thing of seeing them at that stage was the way she carried on. For the last years, they were rarely not in the same room, in what their son Michael called his parents' strange solitude. In October 1977, Charlie made one final trip to see the circus. The entire family returned to Manoir de Bon for Christmas. There were now children and grandchildren filling the house. In the early hours of Christmas Day, 1977, Charles Spencer Chaplin died peacefully in his sleep at the age of 88. A simple funeral was held on December 27th at the local church in Vevey. However, there was one final and bizarre twist to Chaplin's story. On March 1st, the superintendent of the cemetery reported that Chaplin's grave had been opened and the coffin was missing. Many wondered if this was the work of neo-Nazis or anti-Semites. Then the first telephone call came, demanding 600 Swiss francs for the return of the body. After decades of abduction threats against him and his family, Chaplin had finally been kidnapped. Una made it clear that she would not pay the kidnappers, saying, quote, A body is a body. My husband is in heaven and in my heart. But things escalated when the culprits began to threaten the remaining children. 
Christopher was given a police escort to and from school. In the end, the kidnappers proved to be far more like Keystone cops rather than criminal masterminds. Polish mechanic Roman Vardas and Bulgarian defector Gancho Ganev had stolen the body in the hopes of raising enough money to open a car repair shop. The night they dug out the grave, it was raining, ruining their original plan for a hiding spot and forcing them to load the lead-lined casket into their car. Over 76 days and 27 phone calls, mostly fielded by Geraldine, the grave robbers grew lazy. They started using the same payphone and were soon caught by police. They took them to a nearby cornfield where Chaplin's coffin had been half-buried. Later, the farmer who owned the field erected a simple wooden cross with a bamboo cane in memorial. The grave robbing also caught the attention of the FBI. The final documents in the Chaplin file speculate on the reasons for the theft, and true to their legacy, they did nothing to help with the investigation and instead spent their time consulting with several psychics. Una struggled greatly in the wake of Chaplin's death. She stayed at Manoir de Bon and, of all people, became very close friends with David Bowie, who had become her neighbor in 1976 at the tail end of his notorious Thin White Duke phase. The two became so close that some speculated the 58-year-old Una was now the one robbing the cradle with the 29-year-old Bowie. Despite spending some time in New York, Una remained in Switzerland, retreating more and more from the public eye. She continued to struggle with alcoholism until she died in 1991 from pancreatic cancer and was buried alongside Charlie in the Vevey Cemetery. Son Sidney Chaplin retired from acting and owned a restaurant, Chaplin's, in Palm Springs. A&M Records retained ownership of the Chaplin studio throughout the 80s and 90s, and it was famously used as the site of the We Are the World recording sessions in 1985. In the year 2000, it was sold and became the headquarters of the Jim Henson Studio. Above the gate now stands a statue of Kermit the Frog in a tiny coat, baggy pants, holding a bent bamboo cane, and tipping his bowler hat to all who pass by. Many of Chaplin's children went on to become actors, musicians, directors, and recording engineers. His oldest daughter, Geraldine, has appeared in films such as David Lean's Dr. Zhivago and Robert Altman's Nashville, as well as many renowned Spanish-language films, several of which she co-wrote with her then-partner, Carlos Suara. She is still working to this day. Many might know her daughter, Una Chaplin, from her role as Talisa Stark in HBO's Game of Thrones. Chaplin's other legacy is, of course, the 81 films he made. However, for many decades, these treasures had faded into the mists of time. Only in the last 20 years has home video and now streaming made it possible for all of Chaplin's work to be seen and enjoyed, and I fully encourage you to sit down and watch any of his films in its entirety. It's a fool's errand to try to sum up the life of Charlie Chaplin into a few words. But then again, so much of Chaplin's work is basically in service of a fool's errand, so I'll give it a try. I began this series by claiming that greatness was defined by trends and forces, not by the individuals who achieve it. But having gone through Chaplin's story, I'm no longer sure of that position. Who else but Chaplin could have done what he did? No one else on earth possessed the unique set of talents, quirks, and personality defects 
that would drive him to create some of the greatest stories ever told. And what ultimately makes him so special is that his life and his work continues to hold profound relevance to our modern world. In many ways, that's because he made it. Possibly more so than any other 20th century artist, Chaplin showed us the power of modern mass media as a tool for laughter, as a weapon against tyranny, and as a bludgeon against freedom. He blazed both the road to triumph and the path to disaster that would be followed by countless artists. In him, we can both see the good and evil of our own dynamic world, and we also learn that the best response to it is to dust ourselves off and with a hop and a kick, walk proudly toward the horizon. I think Chaplin summed it up best in the byline of his 1923 film, A Woman of Paris, when he wrote, quote, The world is not composed of heroes and villains, but of men and women with all the passions that God has given them. The ignorant condemn, but the wise pity. And cut. That's it. That's Charlie Chaplin. We did it. We did it. Oh, my God. I can't believe it's over. Thank you so much for listening from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please email me behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. Coming soon, we are going to jump to the 1960s and meet an African-American poet, painter, and filmmaker who is sick and tired of having doors shut in his face. Using every trick at his disposal, he decides to make a series of films that would change the course of independent cinema and show the world what it means to get the man's foot out of your ass. Behind the Slate is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. If you enjoyed our series on Charlie Chaplin, there's a few things you can do to help us out. First, if you know someone who you think might like this, please tell them. Second, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews really help us in becoming more searchable, and I would really appreciate it. If you have any questions, comments, you just want to say hi, shoot me an email, behindtheslatepod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at behindtheslatepod. We have a TikTok now at Behind the Slate Pod. We're on YouTube at Behind the Slate Podcast. I think that's everything. And until next time, that's a wrap.